Good morning. <clears throat> Merry Christmas. One of the uh, songs that we sang this morning was um, What Child Is This? And uh, and a uh, question about, about Jesus. Uh, I often had a similar question asked about me. Uh, it was, whose child is this? Uh, and it's amazing how one word can make all the difference, right? Glad to have you here this morning. Uh, this Month we have been taking a break from our our typical uh, study through through the book of Exodus uh, to look at Christmas songs, but Christmas songs recorded in Scripture, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna do that again this morning. Uh, and uh, and I thought about finishing out this month because next week, December thirty first, is on a Sunday, and thought, well, maybe I'll I'll do something about the uh, the wise men. Um, because it makes it makes sense. Uh, because uh, we intentionally. By the way, haven't you enjoyed the uh, the sanctuary? Thank you for those who who put this together. It's it's wonderful, decorated. It's it's just uh, it looks it looks great. Um, and in the decorating, they they put the uh, the wise men here and not over where Jesus is, because. Jesus wasn't, or when Jesus was over there in the stable, the wise guys weren't over there. Uh, and so, um, a friend of mine, Danny, Danny Foot, uh, he would set up his nativity set and he would put the, the wise men as far away from, uh, from the manger as, as he could get because they weren't there. Uh, and so, uh, and the other thing, in case you were wondering, as I'm sure you were, how many wise men were there? We have no idea. We have no idea. Probably between 40 and 100. Uh, we don't have a piece of furniture big enough for all of, all of those. Uh, so they're always represented by three. Why is three the number? There were three gifts. And so they just assumed everybody brought something. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a wrong assumption. Uh, it tells us in, in the Matthew account that when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, was uh, aware of it, and it was the talk. Three guys riding in, Jerusalem's not going to notice. A hundred guys riding in, uh, that, that'll, that'll give you some notice. So that's just, uh, I had a pastor who called it Christmas, uh, and so he always liked to clear up Christmas, uh, and so I thought I would do that this morning. Even though I have a really long sermon, I am wasting so much time, so let's get started on it. This morning, we're looking at Simeon's song. The days surrounding Jesus' birth were intense. Mary, who is a virgin, is visited by an angel and told she's going to give birth to the Son of God. That's a lot of information right there. Mary goes to, to visit her relative at the angel's insistence, and once there, Mary is told by Elizabeth, her relation, that Mary is presently pregnant. Usually you'd be the first to know, uh, but she is told uh, by, by Elizabeth, you're pregnant. Uh, and you're pregnant with the Son of God. Uh, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, being filled by the Holy Spirit, celebrates Mary's miracle baby, and then, Mary, and then Elizabeth prophesies about the child. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? But we're not done. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that Joseph is going to break off the engagement, marriage, the engagement slash marriage, because Mary is pregnant, and they had not yet consummated the marriage, they had not yet become one flesh. An angel tells Joseph to not divorce Mary. She had not been unfaithful. She was 
pregnant because she conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, and the child was the Savior of the world, spoken about the prophet Isaiah. These are all things you don't expect to hear. This is an awful lot of information. Overwhelming. Mary and Joseph make their way to Bethlehem to register for the Roman census. Mary gives birth in a stable cave and uses a feeding trough to hold the baby, which is the God of all creation. A bunch of shepherds rush into the enclosure, all excited. They tell Mary and Joseph and everybody around that an angelic choir announced to them the birth of Jesus. Their heads had to be spinning. I remember when our oldest was born, our first, family came to help with the baby and the house for a week. It was a crazy week. It was a crazy week. We left the hospital with just two of us, and we came back a group of three. That's a big adjustment. The family circus arrived at our house, stayed a week, and then they all left. So you go from all of this activity, all of this noise, all of, it's just, it's, it's crazy for a week, and then everybody leaves, and it's quiet. In the silence, we placed our, our baby on the carpet, and I looked at Mary and asked the question we were both asking silently to ourselves. Now what? We were anticipating this day for so long, it came, for a week it's been crazy, now what do we do? Uh, I figured you kept them until they decided to leave, or, or until you decided it was time for them to leave, whatever came first. I now have a better answer to the question, what now? <clears throat> the answer is, you raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. We're going to answer the question this morning, who is Jesus? Well, to know Jesus is to know that Jesus was raised in the admonition of the Lord, which is an odd concept once you start thinking about it. It says in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That means to walk with God as he grows children. It means to show them the way by example and by accountability and to be attentive to their growth and their relationship with God. Fathers are instructed not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. To not raise them in the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord is to provoke them to wrath. We think about it the other way. It says don't provoke them to wrath. But instead, well, we can, we can switch that up. If you don't raise them up in the instruction of the Lord, you have provoked your child to wrath. In my 22 years of pastoring, I have come to this realization. Kids don't bring themselves to church. 40-day-old Jesus didn't bring himself to the temple. Right? His parents would need to bring him. And that is exactly what Joseph and Mary do. They raise up the Lord in the admonition of the Lord. In Luke 2, verses 22 through 24, it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. 
Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. <coughs> in this passage, in Luke 22, verse, Luke 2, 22 through 24, you'll notice, first of all, that the law of the Lord is emphasized three times. Three times. It says, according to the law of Moses, as it is written in the law of the Lord, uh, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Uh, Joseph made sure that he raised his stepson in the admonition of the Lord. Joseph concerned himself with his wife's responsibility to obey the Lord as well. In this verse, it talks about purification. This is when the days of purification. Purification is mentioned first in being obedient to the law of Moses. Purification was not for the baby, but for the mother. Leviticus 12 gives us a little information about, uh, about the instructions on purification. It says in Leviticus 12, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for thirty-three days in the blood of your purifying. She not shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of your purifying are completed. Now, I believe in my heart of hearts that I was never more funny than when my wife was pregnant. As a young elementary school student, I heard a joke from Ken Davis, who is a Christian comedian. He said that when he and his wife went to birthing classes and saw a video of natural childbirth, at the end of the video, he yelled out, Play it backwards. And everybody in the audience laughed. I learned at that moment that nothing is funnier than birthing jokes. Some of you are looking at me like I might be wrong about that. My wife was one of those people who didn't, who didn't understand that. But I told as many of them as I could think of. Eventually, I got married and a few years later had one of those birthing classes that I went to as well. And I remembered the joke and I thought that I would bring it back. And uh, uh, so that everybody could enjoy it the way that I did. I mean, who couldn't use a little birthing humor? That was my thought. Uh, when the child birthed forth on the video, I was unable to tell the joke. Couldn't tell it. Instead, I looked at my wife and thought in my head, and I don't think I said it out loud because I'd lost the ability to articulate words with my mouth uh, after having watched the birth on video. But in my head, I said, what were you thinking? That's the conclusion I came to. Childbirth is intense, isn't it? There is a lot of blood involved in the process. Because of the blood involved in childbirth, Mary was ceremonially unclean. Look, we just read in, the, in Leviticus 12. Uh, at the end of 40 days, well, she wouldn't be able to participate in temple worship during the time of her uncleanliness. Uh, so at the end of 40 days, if she birthed a boy, 80 days if it was a baby girl, Mary could go through the process of purification to become ceremonially clean again. Now when I read that, I had the question that many of you probably had as well. Why 40 days of uncleanliness if birthing a male 
and 80 days if birthing a female. And I checked some commentaries to find a good answer, and there were no good answers given. There were some funny answers given, uh, but, uh, but no good answers that were given. What I suspect is the answer is not explicitly stated in Scripture, but seems to be inferred by Scripture, and it is something that I have believed for a long time, ever since childbirth, girls have cooties. That's the only conclusion I could come to. It's the only thing that made sense to me. Uh, otherwise, I have, have no idea, but that is what the, what the law said. And so Mary is there after 40 days uh, for purification so she can become ceremonially clean again. Leviticus 12 goes on to say, this is how purification was completed. And when the days of purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord to make atonement for her. Then shall she be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So the priest would perform the sacrifices to make atonement for the new mom, and she would be ceremonially clean after the priest performed those sacrifices. Atonement means covering. The sacrifices would temporarily satisfy God's requirements concerning holiness. Sinful mankind's blood is disgusting before a holy God. The substitutionary animal sacrifices satisfied God's requirement until a permanent sacrifice could be made. Human sin requires perfect human blood to pay for that sin. And until that perfect human died in a substitutionary sacrifice, Animal sacrifices would temporarily satisfy God's holy demands concerning sin. And that's what they went there to to perform for Mary's ceremonial purification. So Joseph and Mary came to the temple to perform the ceremony for purification. They had also come to present their child to the Lord, as was commanded in the covenant given to Moses. In our study of the book of Exodus, uh, that we are taking our small break from, Uh, during this Christmas season, we came across the account where Moses and the Israelites were instructed to to consecrate to the Lord all the firstborn. Wasn't that long ago? Do you remember some of of what we looked at when we we went through through Exodus? Do you remember why? Why were they consecrating? Why were they setting apart the firstborn uh, in, in Exodus and then continued, told to continue to do it? Because in the final plague, where God judges Egypt, all the firstborn males died as the angel of death passed over their homes. Unless the home had the blood of the Passover lamb painted on the doorposts and the header of the front door. God purchased the firstborn with the blood of the lamb. To help future generations of Israelites remember what God had done for them and to point to the Christ, God instituted the consecration of the firstborn. The firstborn were to be sacrificed unto the Lord with a couple of exceptions. Firstborn humans weren't to be sacrificed. Instead, they were to be redeemed. They were to be bought back by by sacrificing a lamb in the firstborn's place, just like the Israelites did in the first Passover. 
Joseph and Mary came to the temple in obedience of God's commands. It said in Leviticus, if a family could not afford a lamb to sacrifice, they were allowed to sacrifice a pigeon or dove instead, which is what Joseph and Mary did when presenting Jesus and uh, when presenting Jesus and for Mary's ceremonial purification. As mentioned a few moments ago, Joseph and Mary had seen and experienced more than any new parents had ever experienced before their time or since their time. Perhaps they thought normalcy was on the way. Now what? But the hits keep coming. While in the temple, they meet a man named Simeon, and that whose, whose song we're going to look at this morning in Luke 2, verses 25 through 26. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So we get a little information about Simeon. First of all, we're told that Simeon was righteous and devout and that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What is the consolation of Israel? It is the day Israel will receive eternal comfort. That's what consolation means. It means comfort. Simeon was the one who was waiting for that day. In this Luke chapter 2, Isaiah is is, uh, quoted constantly. Uh, And so, if you want to understand better what's, what's going on, we'll touch on it this morning, but if you're into a, a deeper dive, um, cross-reference, your, your, your Bible will have little cross-references, cross-reference and, and write down the passages that I mentioned from Isaiah that, uh, that deal with, with, uh, with Luke chapter 2. In Isaiah 25 verse 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Sound familiar with what was happening with Simeon? says, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. Simeon is the personification of that, of that prophecy, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the comfort of Israel. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 2, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Simeon is waiting for that day. Isaiah fifty-seven eighteen says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the consolation of Israel. Jesus is the one who brings comfort. He is the one who brings comfort. The prophecies in Isaiah about the comfort of Israel are fulfilled in Jesus. Luke gives a great title to Jesus, and that is he is the consolation or the comfort of Israel. A lot of times with what's going on in the world, we we rightfully hear, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You can't have peace without the Prince of Peace. And so when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what are we praying for? 
We're praying that they will recognize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. Because until that happens, there will be no peace. There won't be. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to seek it, but just recognize that the fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit, we are told. And Simeon was told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before seeing the Lord's Christ. He wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Christ. Now you get the feeling, at least I do, that Simeon was not passively waiting. He was looking intently for the Lord's Christ. We are not told how old Simeon was when Jesus was brought to the temple, but Simeon hoped each day to discover the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Each day he went to the temple and he thought, I hope today's the day. I hope today's the day. I think Simeon went to the temple to find it because he figured, I don't know when I'll see them, but I think I know where I'll see them. Certainly the Lord's Christ will come here. Uh, there was a Kelvin and Hobbes cartoon, and, uh, and in that Kelvin and Hobbes cartoon, Kelvin says that the secret of life is being at the right place at the right time. He said the problem is, is that you never know when the right, right time is going to come. So I figure I'll wait at the comic book store for that right time. Not a bad place to wait. Uh, Simeon went to the temple each, each day hoping, perhaps today is the day where I see the comfort of Israel. Today's might be the day I see the Savior of the world. It says in Luke 2, verses 27 through 32, it says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Upon seeing the child Jesus, Simeon began praising God. In verses 29 through 32, we hear his song of praise. For what does Simeon praise God? First of all, he praises God for his faithfulness in keeping his word to Simeon. Warren Wearsby wrote, how important it is for the people to see God's salvation, Jesus Christ, before they see death. Simeon praises God because Simeon saw the Lord's salvation, and now he can die happy. Many people talk about their bucket list, the things they want to do before they kick the bucket, where that term comes from. My bucket list is comprised of things I would like to eat before I die. Other people have lofty goals like run a marathon or see a great wonder of the world like the pyramids or maybe even write a novel. If I die before I run a marathon, I will be okay. I like to see things. It would be cool to see the pyramids or some great natural wonder. But if I don't, that's okay. Why? Because I have seen and experienced the Lord's salvation. You see, there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. The new creation will be populated only by those who have called on the name of the Lord for salvation. I think this creation will, the one to come, will pale, or the, the current creation will pale in comparison to the new creation. So if I don't see it all here, 
that's all right because there's a new earth coming and it's going to be way better than this one. And, and I'll have all eternity to, uh, to explore and discover God's new creation. Simeon praises God with that realization. He also praises God for more than just God's faithfulness to him. Uh, I've heard it sem- said that a, a nice person isn't someone who's just who's nice to you but rude to the waiter. That's not the definition of a nice person. Uh, Simeon doesn't just praise God for God's faithfulness to him, but Simeon praises God for his faithfulness in providing salvation to all who trust in the Lord. God's salvation, he says, was prepared in the presence of all people, not just the select few. You see, if Jesus were the mayor of Boston, everybody would have gotten an invite to the Christmas party. If you need a savior, God has provided you one. Simeon was a Jewish man who was in a Jewish temple holding a Jewish child, praising God for the salvation prepared in the presence of all people. That salvation is a revealing light to the Gentiles, Simeon says, and glory for God's chosen nation, Israel. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. The idea that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, would go beyond just Jerusalem and Judea is found way back in the Old Testament. Now, in the book of Acts, you see it took about 10 years for it to happen. But God prophesied all the way back with Isaiah that it would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, a light for the nations. I believe this prophecy is specifically about the Messiah. The Messiah is not just a Savior for Israel, but the Savior of the world, a light for the nations. And Simeon is praising God for the child in his arms, calling the child a light of revelation for the Gentiles. Simeon also proclaimed that the child in his arms was the glory of his, or the glory to Israel. Again in Isaiah 46:13, I bring my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. <clears throat> Jesus is the salvation of the world. It is too small a thing that the Christ be only for the salvation and preservation of one nation. Instead, he is the preservation and the salvation from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Isaiah 49.6 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too small. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus is much greater than only for the salvation of one group. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Simeon waited for the Christ to be shown to him. And an important truth occurred to me as I was going over it this past week. Jesus is worth the wait. We are all waiting for Jesus to call us to our eternal home because our citizenship is in heaven. And you know what? I'm ready to go home. It is tempted to get distracted while we wait. Some people lack the patience, so they move on to something else, something more entertaining. They put their focus and energy only on the here and now. 
They strive for good health, good wages, good mental health. They look to possess significance and security in this life. This life is like a carnival to many people. They have been given $20 and they can't wait to spend it. One loaf of cotton candy and a short ride on the zipper and their money is gone with nothing to show for it. Simeon did not make that mistake. His hope was on seeing his salvation and he found it and he was eternally satisfied. Joseph and Mary marveled at what Simeon prophesied about their son. Both had been told in a vision by an angel who it was Mary would give birth but hearing Simeon, Simeon utter it again with his particular emphasis made that his particular emphasis made them marvel even more. Their understanding grew of who it was they had been gifted as caretakers. A mark of a good parent is how much do other people enjoy being around your kids. When you arrive at a busy place and it clears out quickly when your kids are with you, and you find yourself saying, where did everybody go? It might be your kid. Mary and Joseph were constantly having people praise and proclaim their child. Angels, shepherds, and now some stranger in the temple are all praising God and proclaiming the baby Jesus as Savior of the world. It would be hard to not get a big head as Jesus' parents. But Simeon gives Mary a warning about how the world would react to her child. Look at Luke 2, verses 34 through 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. <coughs> and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon tells Mary that not everyone would appreciate and recognize the perfection of her son. Many would oppose him. For a time, Jesus' own brothers opposed him. Mary would see her son be mocked, ridiculed, arrested, beaten, lied about, tortured, and killed. Mary's heart would feel pain as she witnessed crowds chant encouragement to the Roman authority to kill her son. Crucify him. She heard it. While on the cross, Jesus would look at his mother and tell the Apostle John to care for her. She saw him breathe his last breath before dying. But it is also likely that she saw thousands of people on the day of Pentecost place their trust in her son for eternal life. She likely saw an empty tomb and the ascension of Jesus into the clouds. Mary is told by Simeon that her child Jesus would reveal the thoughts of many people. And Jesus does that. Jesus reveals the thoughts of mankind. Again, in Isaiah verse 8, it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. That one stone would do all of those things. It would be a shelter, a sanctuary, but also a rock of stumbling and a stone of offense, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus is both a sanctuary, 
a place of protection and rest, and a rock on which people stumble and are broken. Jesus said this about himself in Matthew 21, verses 43 through 44. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is salvation for some and eternal punishment for others. During this time of year, we celebrate the Savior, we celebrate the birth of our Savior, and it is a great time of celebration. Many people have family that celebrate Christmas, but they do it without the personal knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior. We see family and friends who are missing out on the Savior. They don't get it. And they think your commitment to Christ is strange, even if they pay lip service to Jesus and enjoy Christmas songs that proclaim Jesus to be the Christ and King. And when you proclaim Christ to them, they ignore it or become agitated by it. And I came to this conclusion as well. Christmas is hard. Christmas can be hard, isn't it? It can be a very difficult time of year. So how do we handle celebrating Christmas with people who deny Christ's salvation? You cannot drag people into a relationship with Christ. It doesn't work. You cannot convince them with great argumentation to trust Christ because they are spiritually blind. Can you argue a blind person to start seeing? No. It would be odd if you tried, wouldn't it? You can't argue a spiritually blind person to spiritual sight, but the Holy Spirit can. Here is what Paul told the believers in Corinth about his approach in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is Paul, like the greatest evangelist ever, right? He said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says, When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says that he kept it simple. Christ, him crucified. Paul said he didn't come with his own great authority world-famous Paul. Paul says he did not rely on himself, but on the Spirit of God and the power of God. So how do we celebrate Christmas when it can be hard to celebrate when we're with people that, that don't celebrate Christmas as the Savior of the world, but just celebrate it as a, as a season? Be faithful. Be faithful and trust God to do the rest. When I first started pastoring over 20 years ago, I was a nervous guy. I felt incredible amounts of pressure to make sure everyone in the church was on the right track. If they wandered away from God's word, I thought it was my fault. You don't sleep well when you put that burden upon yourself. I laid in bed thinking about what should I have said or what should I say to convince people to be obedient to God by trusting a God above all else. What great argumentation can I come up with? What, what lofty words could I use? What, what wisdom could I 
presented in, and I would, I would stay awake all night trying to figure it out. I came to a realization that I've needed to remind myself many times through the years. I am not the Holy Spirit. And when I try to be the Holy Spirit, I do a lousy job. We are called to proclaim. God is the one who convinces. And he does so in his time. So be faithful to proclaim Jesus Christ this Christmas. Jesus is the one who kept the law perfectly. Jesus is the one who is the consolation of Israel. Jesus is the one who reveals the thoughts of the world. Jesus is worth waiting for. There is one more character in the Christmas account in Luke chapter 2, and her name is Anna. I believe Anna demonstrates what our response should be as a people who know the Lord and live in his salvation. In verse 36 of Luke chapter 2, it tells us there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from the time she was married, from the time she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him of all the people who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What did Anna do? She did two things. She gave thanks. She gave thanks. Let's make sure that this season of Christmas, as we think about the birth of our Savior, that we do it with thanksgiving. Paul said he didn't use lofty, lofty words, but instead he demonstrated. One of the ways we demonstrate the goodness of God is to give thanks. And the second thing is, is that she made known. She made known. She said she didn't give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She made Jesus known. Those are the two ways to celebrate Christmas. To give thanks and to make the Savior known. Can Christmas be difficult? I know the great concern for many people here is, is their, their children and, uh, uh, and their children's walk with, with the Lord. And uh, I know that it keeps a lot of people up at night thinking about that. Uh, so how should you respond? Give thanks and make him known. Trusting the Lord to do the work. It's not on you. Just be faithful. Heavenly Father, we are so glad that, uh, that you sent your Son to be born, to live that perfect sinless life so that he was that perfect sinless sacrifice. And that salvation is not guaranteed to everybody even though he is the Savior of the world, but his sacrifice was enough that it satisfied your demands and that there's nothing other than, than trusting your Son as their Savior that's necessary for anybody's salvation. There's nothing more that we need to do that it has been completed. Uh, and that, Father, we look forward to the day when, when we're told about uh, the new creation, the new heaven, and the new earth, that there'll be a day where people from every tribe, tongue, nation will praise their Savior. Uh, and, uh, and Father, for those that, uh, that have Christmas this, this year with, with family or, or friends who do not know their Son as their Savior and it grieves them deeply, 
Father, I ask that you would give them peace and, uh, and assurance that they can trust you uh, and, uh, and that, you, um, that you know all things and, uh, and that you work things in your time. Father, we ask that, uh, that we would be thankful people, that we would demonstrate our salvation, not by argumentation, but by thanksgiving. And Father, that we will just be able to speak the truth in love, uh, not trying to drag anybody into heaven because that doesn't work, but Father, that we just have the privilege of, of making your Son known, making you known, making your way of salvation known uh, this, this Christmas season. We thank you that, uh, uh, that you loved us enough to send your Son to die for us and that he rose again so we have a hope of our own resurrection. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.